Today's scripture comes from Psalm 102, 18-28. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together, and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. And your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is the word of God. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Monica. Let's go to God one more time and ask for his blessing as we hear from his word. Father, we ask that you would help us now to hear your voice. For as your son speaks on your behalf, we are his shepherd. We are his sheep, and he is our shepherd, and we hear the voice of our shepherd. We pray that we will hear your voice through him as the Holy Spirit speaks through the word of God. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to receive all the blessings that come as we sit under your word, and that you will now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, if you live in New York City long enough you'll hear certain phrases more often in this city than in probably any other cities. Phrases that are on repeat so often, they almost become like white noise, static in the background. And one particular statement that I'm thinking of is this one. Time is money. Time is money. Have you heard that before? Come on, people. Time is money. Time is money. Let's go. Let's go. Time is money. Of course you have. And of course, we have to thank our good old founding father, Ben Franklin, for that statement, for he's the one who coined it. But what an odd statement it is. Time is money. Because on the one hand, yes, it is very much true that time is like money. And yet, on the other hand, paradoxically, that couldn't be further from the truth because time is not like money at all. Let me explain. See, time is like money in the sense you never feel you have enough of it. Just like money, right? You always feel like you need more time, just like we always feel like we need more money. Time is one of those things like, man, if only I had more of it. So yes, time is like money. But yet on the other hand, time is not like money at all. Because with money, once you spend it, you can always get more of it. You could work for it. You can ask mommy or daddy for it. You can ask your husband and wife for it. You can always get more money when you spend it, but not with time. When you spend that day, when you spend that week, when you spend that month, that year, it's forever gone. Once time is spent, it is nowhere to be found ever again in your life. Once it's gone, it's never more. Now, you combine these two ideas of always wanting more time, but never being able to get more time once you spend it, creates this combined negative effect, a negative attitude, really, that we have towards time. And you know what that attitude is? It's the utter hatred of time whether you're cognizant of it or not 
The fact of the matter is, there is this general, universal negativity towards time to where we do not like time at all. Back when I was in early college, there was a popular band that came out of Charleston, South Carolina, called Hootie and the Blowfish. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them. Such a weird name for a band. And they came out with a debut album where one of their singles hit number one. It was called Time. And if you take a listen to the lyrics, it really encapsulates this ambivalence, this negative ambivalence that we have towards time. Listen to how it goes. Time, why you punish me? Like a wave crashing into the shore, you wash away my dreams. Time, why you walk away? Like a friend with somewhere to go, you left me crying. Time, the past has come and gone, the future's far away. Well, now only lasts for one second, one second. Time is wasting, time is walking. You ain't no friend of mine. I don't know where I'm going. I think I'm out of my mind thinking about time we're continuing our sermon series entitled god as he is excuse me god as he is and the whole point of this series is to consider what the bible says about god as he is written about in the scripture why well not only to just edify you as christians but more importantly to educate you Christian, because as you come to share the God that you worship, the God you love throughout the various social networks that you have, your non-Christian friends, your non-Christian siblings, your non-Christian schoolmates, your coworkers, you want to be able to cut through all that mischaracterization, all those false caricatures that our society builds up about the God you worship so that you can instead correct it with the biblical understanding of who God is as he is spoken of in the Bible. And today, we're going to take a look at a characteristic of God, an attribute of God that initially may seem abstract and therefore irrelevant to your life. And I'm talking about God's eternal nature. I want to talk about the eternal nature of God. And as we take a look at this passage in Psalm 102, you'll come to discover not only is this a very practical and therefore relevant topic at hand, but it will specifically address this ambivalence, this hatred of time that we have and how we can overcome it. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you today. First, let's talk about the God that is eternal. Number two, let's talk about why we need a God that is eternal. And finally, how we receive the God that is eternal. The God that is eternal, why we need that God and how to have him. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the God that is eternal. Let's skip down to the middle section of our passage we're starting in verse 25 it says this of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you will remain they will wear out like a garment you will change them like a robe and they will pass away but you are the same and your years have no end the children of your servants shall dwell secure their offspring shall be established before you come on back here the psalmist is telling us something about God, a unique characteristic that he has. And what is that characteristic? Well, he says right there in verse 27, God has no end. God has no end. And what he means by that is, unlike everything else in life that ages and therefore slows down, wears down, and eventually breaks down and is no more, that is not true of God. God does not wear down. He just keeps on going without any of these negative effects of time. Why? Because God, says scripture, is eternal. He is eternal. In other words, God is not a victim like you and I are to the ravages of time. Right? He is immortal. He is outside of time. He is not in time. And because he is outside of time, categories like beginning, middle, and end simply do not apply to him. Now, you hear this and you're like, okay, Pastor John, that's very interesting to know. Why is that necessary for me to know? 
You see a lot of interesting things up here, but why is that necessary for me to know? Great question. Here's the answer. As you attempt to live out and therefore share your faith with your various non-Christian friends, coworkers, and neighbors, and so forth, one challenging question that they may ask that's so frequently asked of us is this one. If God created this universe, well, who created God? You guys ever heard that question before? If God created this designed universe, well, who created the designer? This is known as the fallacy of passing the buck. And what this fallacy basically says is, you Christians say that because the universe is so obviously designed, and because it's so complicated and intricate, pointing to a designer, then surely, just by your argument, God must be the most designed, most complicated thing of all. So that begs the question, who designed him, right? Because the whole premise that they're using against us is this idea that we make that because the universe is so designed, it's so intricate, it's so complicated, pointing to a designer, then we say, well, if God is designed and if God is complicated because he's God, then he must have a designer too. So there you are. That's the argument. That's the fallacy of passing the buck. But it's a very weak argument because it assumes the properties of design upon God. The properties of design. What do I mean by that? What, what are the properties of design? Well, let me explain by first defining for you the word design itself. And this is actually a definition given to us by Costas Terzidis, who teaches at the Harvard School of Design. He says this, quote, Design is a vague, ambitious, and indefinite process of genesis, emergence, or formation of something to be executed. From its Greek definition, definition, excuse me, design is about incompleteness, indefiniteness, or imperfection. Yet, it is also about likelihood, expectation, or anticipation. In its largest sense, design signifies not only the vague, intangible, or ambiguous, but also the strive to capture the elusive. Now, what in the world is he saying? Any designers in here? I know we have a couple. You guys know what he's saying? I know what he's saying. He's essentially saying that anything that has design in it, by definition, has a process, a cause and effect where it's trying to reach a specific goal. It has a genesis, it has a process where there's cause and effect, and it ultimately reaches a goal. What is that? That's a beginning, that's a middle, that's an end. Anything that has design has those categories of something that's beginning, something that's in progress, and something that eventually is going to end, okay? Anything that has design has those categories. So going back to the universe, of course we can say the universe has design in it because we all know, if you ever study you know, astrophysics, this universe had a beginning. We call it the Big Bang. And right now we are in process of what its eventual end is going to be, which is what? The universe is going to die. It's going to have an end. We call it entropy. So yes, we could say the universe has design in it because it has these characteristics of design, beginning, middle, and end. But the one whom the Bible states design this universe is not design at all because by definition god is eternal he is outside of these categories of beginning middle and end there is no design in god at all consider these words from theologian j.i packer when he writes this quote created things have a beginning and an ending but not so their creator the answer to the child's question who made god is simply that god did not need to be made for he was always there he exists forever and he is always the same he does not grow older. His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers nor lose those that he once had. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wise as time goes by. He cannot change for the better, wrote A.W. Pink, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. 
Because there was never a moment where God did not exist, God had no beginning. And because God is never aging or growing, there's never a process where he's maturing, where he's experiencing new insight, new experiences, right? To where he changes or evolves. And because God never ends, there is never a goal for him to achieve. They have nothing because God is perfect. He has no new adventures to discover. He has no new insights to learn. He has no new goals to achieve because he has already achieved perfection because he is eternal. Now, you Christians in here, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, Pastor, further interesting knowledge that you've given to me. But if I shared that with my non-Christian friends, all it could do is maybe push back against this whole who created God argument. But I don't think what you shared with me could do anything to warm up their hearts, to want to trust or believe in God. Is there a way in which I can present God's eternal nature that would actually want to encourage and comfort them to believe and to follow this God? Well, I believe there is. And this leads me to my next point, why we need a God that is eternal. Let's go back to the very beginning of our passage at verse 18, where it says this. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. Here we find the psalmist telling someone, whether it's himself or someone listening to him, to record something. Now I'm going to go into what he's actually telling that person to record. But for now, I just want to focus on the fact of this announcement to record at all. Why? Because that very statement assumes that this guy believes something is absolutely true when he has no right, no basis to believe it's absolutely true. And what is that? It's the assumption that a new generation is going to come after him. This psalmist is making the claim that there is a new generation coming after him. Now you hear me say that and you're like, so what? (laughs) What's the big deal? Isn't that what most people assume? Don't most people assume that a new generation is going to come up after him? That doesn't sound too scandalous. In fact, isn't it those crazy wackos, those weird, weird, you know, apocalyptic people who store water and food, who think the world is going to end anymore? Aren't those the crazies who think there's no new generation? So why are you making such a big deal on a common assumption most people make and making it sound like it's such a crazy, radical assumption to make, PJ? Well, let me tell you why. Old Testament scholars tell us that the psalmist wrote this, wrote it at a time when Jerusalem was attacked and conquered by their enemies, most likely the Babylonians. And indeed, if you read the earlier verses of this chapter, which we didn't do, you can easily extrapolate a scenario that shows national cataclysmic catastrophe. For example, in verses 4 and 5, he says this, My heart is sick, withered like grass, and I have lost my appetite. Because of my groaning, I am reduced to skin and bones. And then if you skip down to verse 8 and 9, he tells you why he feels this way. My enemies taunt me day after day. They mock and curse me. I eat ashes for food. My tears run down into my drink. And then further on in 13, he adds this, You, God, will rise and have mercy on Jerusalem. He's saying, God, you will in the future have mercy, which seems to strongly apply that in the present, you aren't showing mercy to us, you're showing judgment, right? Here, you put all these verses together, you can easily reconstruct the situation this guy is in. This man is suffering, not because he has some private demons, not because he has some personal issues that he's dealing with. No, he is suffering because there is an external threat that has consumed him and his fellow citizens. 
that is truly catastrophic to where he's not even sure there's going to be a next day, that there is going to be a tomorrow. There is no hope. It's as if the Nazis conquered us. What hope could we possibly have in a tomorrow, right? This is the context. This is why he says, let it be recorded for a new generation that is not yet to be born. You're like, uh, how can you be so audacious? How can you be so presumptuous to say, you know for sure that a new generation is coming? How can you do that? Here now you begin to see why God's eternal nature can be a source of major comfort. Read again with me verse 19. He says, that he, God, looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth. You see that phrase? God looked down from his holy height. What does that mean? Do you know what that means? Well, it's actually not too hard to figure out if we just think about it for just a moment. In our society, we symbolize a person's authority over us through height. Have you noticed that? For those of you who had the unfortunate incident of ever having to go to court for whatever reason, I'm not judging, but if you ever had that experience and you're standing before a judge, that judge usually is sitting at a higher elevation than you, right? Because that's a symbolic gesture to show that at that moment, at that time, that judge has complete authority over you, right? Or how about the location that describes our governing leaders that exercises their authority over us? What do we call that place? Capital what? Hill, right? Again, this idea of elevation, of height, to show that these people have a vantage point that's way above ours, giving them the ability to exercise authority over us. Height symbolically conveys this idea of having authority over a person, okay? But now look again at how the psalmist describes this authority that God has, this height. What does he call it? He calls it a holy height, a holy authority. For those of you who remember from a couple weeks ago on the Sermon on Holiness, you know what it means to be holy, right? It means something that is categorically different, something so set apart, Something that nothing and no one else can come close to or equal or overcome and match, right? And so when the psalmist says that God has a holy height where he looks down upon, it means that God has an authority that no other authority on earth could come close to, no other authority could overturn or match, right? Now, with that established, we ask the further question, who does this authoritative God have authority over? Again, 19 and 20, we read, He, God, looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. God has a holy authority to look down over the prisoners. Now, when you first hear this, it almost sounds like it's saying that God has authority over prisoners who are ready to be punished. Kind of like the way you would imagine a judge is ready to execute his judgment, to condemn and to possibly put to death, right? Those who are doomed to die. But that isn't what it's saying. Read it more carefully. What does he use his authority over? So he could hear. He could hear the groanings of the prisoner. It doesn't say so that he could hear the groanings of someone on trial who could go to prison. No, it's someone who's already been condemned, someone who's already been judged, someone who is already in prison. Here's the question. Who goes to prison to listen to the groanings of prisoners? Is it judges ready to execute judgment? No. It's defense attorneys, right? Defense attorneys who are ready to hear the complaints, the groaning, so they can use their authority to set the prisoner free, right? That is the image that the psalmist is trying to say. God has authority so he could listen to the groanings 
of those who are doomed, those who are in prison. Now, again, some of you are thinking, Pastor, I've never been in prison. I don't ever plan to be in prison. So what does any of this have to personally do with me? Fair question. Let me answer it by asking another question. What do all of you have in common with prisoners? What do all of you have in common with prisoners other than the obvious fact that you're all sinners like they are? Give up. The enemy of time. The enemy of time. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the way we describe people who are in prison, we say that they're what? They're doing time. Yo, where's Pookie? Oh, you didn't hear? He's doing time up in Attica. Doing time. Time. Time? Isn't it interesting? You like that, Pookie? I just made it up. I don't know who Pookie is. I got to figure out later today. But you guys ever notice that? Prisoners are the perfect symbol of those who are suffering from the enemy of time. Because think about it. Prisoners are in their present situation because they did something in their past. And the fact that they're in prison reminds them of that past that they're ashamed of, that they're guilty of, that they're filled with so much dread and regret. But because their present situation is way leading into their future, their future is condemned as well. And so here you have a situation where a person's past, present, and future is nothing but dismal. It's dark. It's hopeless. Right? And so what does a prisoner do? They groan. Why? Because they are suffering under the oppressive authority of time. Here's the thing, folks. It's not just prisoners who exclusively suffer this oppression of time, right? Every single one of us in here, at one point, maybe even now, maybe even frequently, still feel like a prisoner. You have things in your past that you are ashamed of. You have things in your past that still haunt you now. You have guilt and shame, things that you wish you didn't do, things that you wish you didn't say, things that you wish you could go back and change, but it's forever there, frozen, to where the cold wind still bitterly freeze your heart right now. And because you're so stuck in this situation, it just totally sabotages any hope for a future, Right? Because as you think about what could possibly come into my life, given this is my fate, this is my doom, this is my present circumstances, how could I possibly see a better tomorrow? How often do we feel a prisoner to the oppressive authority of time where our past seems to have cursed our present, therefore dooming us into having a gloomless, a gloomy, dark future? By the way, these failures and mistakes may not just be your own. It could be someone who failed you or made mistakes against you in your past that still haunt you now, that still stain you now, that still overwhelm you now to where you still feel in prison. And again, you still feel the same way. You see, the psalmist is trying to tell us something about life that so often many of us don't realize. And that is when you live in time and yet you live in sin, whether it's your own sin or someone sinning against you, time morphs into becoming an oppressive authority over you, where past, present, and future just feels like a mental prison cell. And you just feel so doomed. And what could you possibly do? Because are you ever a timeless being? Are you ever not in the present? Are you ever not able to escape the past or ever go into the future? You can't. You are a time-bound being. And so you can never escape this oppressive authority, this tyrancy of time. 
You're hopeless, aren't you? Maybe. Maybe. Unless there's a greater authority you can appeal to. An authority that's not bound by time. An authority that's eternal. An authority that maybe loves you and is for you. That can actually overturn the authority of time because this one is not in time. Now you begin to see, do you not? Why God being eternal is not some abstract theological thing, but it can actually be a present day practical comforting truth that can release you from despair and hopelessness that you may be going through now. But here's the question. How do you overcome this thing by having access to this eternal God? How do you have this eternal God coming for you, overturning the tyrancy of time and its abuse of authority over your life? And this leads me to my final point, how we receive the God who is eternal. Read again verse 23 and 24. It says this, He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generation. Here, Something unexpected just happened. Something we did not anticipate. The psalmist tells us that the reason why time has such a tyrannical, oppressive authority over us is because God has permitted it to happen. Read again what it says in 24. He, that is God, is the one who broke my strength in mid-course. He is the one who shortened my days. The reason why time is able to cause us to suffer It's because God is the Lord of time, which means time is a servant of the Lord. Time is the one who executes the judgment of God. So that when you sin in time, it is God who releases time to go against you, who causes time to oppress you, to cause time to make you feel imprisoned by it. Which means what? It means if you want to be released from this idea of time, It's not simply appealing to God's eternal nature. It starts by doing what he is doing in verse 24. What is he doing? He's repenting, right? That's the underlying assumption when he says, take me not away in the midst of my days. What does he say? Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Do not summon your servant time to go against me. Do not imprison me with your servant time. Set me free. Have mercy. Forgive me of my sins. What is this guy doing? He's believing the gospel. That's what he's doing. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says, even though God had every right to leave you imprisoned into this tyrannical authority known as time because you sinned against him, God chose not to execute that decision. Instead, he did something so weird, so intriguing, so mysterious that even to this day, theologians have no idea how this is possible. God came into the world in history, in time, 2,000 years ago, as a man named Jesus Christ. And as this man, what did he do? He suffered, he was humiliated, and he died. He was your substitute. He paid the full penalty of all your sins. Why? So that you would not end up like Jesus. How did Jesus end up when he died? He ended up like a prisoner didn't he? And how did Jesus spend his last hours as a prisoner? He spent his last hours as a groaning prisoner. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
groaning. But the difference is, unlike what the psalmist gets to experience, which is the father hearing the groan of the prisoner, the father wasn't listening at this time. On Calvary's hill, he was not listening at all. Why? So that if you put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you would know that your father will always hear you every time you're overwhelmed by the oppressive authority of time. That's the whole point. That's the message. And if you're here today investigating Christianity and you respond to today's message by making Christ the center of your life, by confessing your sins, by recognizing Jesus for who he is, your creator God, who you've been destined to live in fellowship with, in peace and in love, that will change you. That will set you free from the oppression of time. You know why? Because one of the benefits that come out of the gospel, that come out of the cross of Christ, is what? Eternal life. The hope of eternal life. So even when it seems time is not on your side now, eternity is on your side forever. Even though it seems time is not on your side now, eternity is on your side forever. You will experience the full pardon of Jesus acquired for you by the fact that when you die, that is not the end of you. That is simply the beginning of a time that never ends. And by the way, a time that has no time. Eternity has no past. It has no present. It has no future. And guess what? Eternal life has no sin. That's the good news of the afterlife. There is no history, there is no time, there is no sin, and therefore there is no oppressive authority to imprison you because of your sins. But here's the question. Do you believe that? Will you believe that? I want to end my message with a little story I came across in reading a book. It's actually one of my favorite books. And no, it's not a massive 800-page theological or philosophical tomb. It's actually a small little book written by an unknown pastor up in Canada called um, Things Unseen. <clears throat> and it's written by a pastor named Mark Buchanan. And in the book, he tells the story of one of his friends, Eugene, who's a devout Christian, has a daughter with his wife by the name of Heather, who's two years old at the beginning of the story. Well, one day, Eugene comes home, and he finds out that his house has been cleaned out. No one is there. He comes to discover that his wife was having an affair right under his nose with his own best friend. Years go by while he's trying to find, and eventually two years later, he finds his family. But at this point, his daughter Heather is now four years old, and his wife, using the courts against him, right, had <clears throat> basically given sole custody over her daughter, and the man that she was with, his former best friend, adopted Heather as his own. So now he had no legal rights. Right? A couple years go by, Heather's mom dies, and her adopted father or stepfather goes underground again. And he's unable to find his daughter, even though he desperately searches. All throughout his life, at that point, he's praying for Heather every day, hoping and praying to God for an opportunity to be reunited. A few years more go by. He meets a woman at church, falls in love with her. Together, they adopt a son, and they raise you know, a family together. Healing has started to come into Eugene's life. But it wasn't full healing. It wouldn't come until 20 years later when he got a certain knock on the door. He opens it, and immediately he sees a grown woman standing before him. He knows exactly who it is. It's his daughter, Heather. She found him. 
Now, it's at this point you would imagine that Pastor Mark, as he's telling the story, he says, look, see, God heals, God restores, happily ever after. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he's now just starting to get to his point in the story. And I want to read to you the portion of the book where he talks about it. It's kind of long, but I think it's so important for you to listen to. Listen to what he says as he reflects on this tragic story. He says this, quote, We've all lived long enough to know that after suffering, something is lost, irretrievable, and something lingers, inexpungible. So a deep pain remains for Eugene and his daughter. Something is always missing. There are conversations they never had and never can have. There are all the years that his daughters went to bed, maybe sucking a thumb and clutching a fever blanket when he was not there to read her a story, tuck her in, kiss her. He wasn't there to look stern and menacing and hide his trembling inside the night she went out on her first date. He wasn't there to tell her about God, his infinite bigness, and yet the way he becomes small, how it is that in heaven there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. Our sorrow has as much to do with remembered suffering as it does with present suffering. Indeed, most human suffering is cumulative, a case of a lifetime's worth of losses and misses, heartaches and hardships. So how can there be no more sorrows in heaven? Is it that our memories themselves are erased and that all the pain that abused, ambushed us and all the joy that fled us on earth, all the wrong we've done and had done us simply slip into the vast sea of forgetting? Or... Is it that we get divine perspective on all these things with God's transcendent power and consoling depths of understanding? And aha, so that's what God was up to, revelation. Perhaps, but maybe it's different from that. Maybe in heaven all our losses are not forgotten. Maybe they're returned. Maybe all the heartbroken and strewn parts of ourselves come back more alive and connected than they've ever been. But regardless of that, this one thing is true. Heaven is where our inescapable sense of loss and incompleteness is overcome. Our perfect hunger for perfect justice and perfect mercy and perfect joy and peace, all is met there. Maybe, just maybe, our sorrow is not forgotten or bathed in the light of perfect understanding. Maybe all of it, very last shred of it, is redeemed, given back. And Eugene gets to tuck Heather into bed and sing her a lullaby. Hmm. Let me ask you, Christian. If God loves you enough, where he's willing to extend his merciful, merciful forgiveness when you sin against him. Do you not think that he loves you enough that he would not extend his merciful restoration when people sin against you? Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that when you die and go to heaven, you get to you know, relive every possible opportunities that you didn't take here on earth as if all of eternity is where you're living out multiple alternate lives that could have been, Right? that you now regret. But what I am saying is God is a God who restores what was lost, right? He doesn't give second chances to get things you never had, but he does restore what was lost. That's the whole understanding of the gospel. You're thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. What are the implications of this? Multiple universe? No, I don't get it. That's okay. You know what else I don't get? I don't get the gospel. I don't get how an eternal son can become a mortal man. It still boggles my mind, yet I still believe it. Could it not be that maybe this is something you could believe as well? My open prayer for us is that as we meditate on what it means for our God to be eternal, no longer will we say, oh, what abstract, philosophical, wasted thinking about God, but that you would treasure it in your heart and see that the next time you feel imprisoned by the tyranny of time, you know that eternity is coming for you 
And when it comes, you never have to let go of anything here that was taken away. Because in Christ, everything is restored. Everything is given back. And you get to tuck Heather back into bed and sing her a lullaby. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the implications, the joyous hope that we have in you being our eternal God. Father, as we are very much aware, time is not on our side. Time is wasting and it's walking away from us to where we know it is no friend of ours. But Lord, we ask that as we live our lives, we would not live as if we are doomed, imprisoned, just relive the remainder of our years, wasting away like a prisoner without parole. But instead, we would move forward in faith, knowing that there is forgiveness, there is restoration, there is healing coming for us. And indeed, we've already tasted it now through the work of your spirit in our hearts in this community of faith. Lord, I pray for every brother and sister and every guest in this room who have been oppressed by the tyranny of time and that they would know that there is a God, that there is an authority they can appeal to who is not only their great defense attorney, but someone who is also the great judge who has overturned all things that is against us through the Christ, our Savior. Help us to believe that now, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.